0: Begin Podfix Network transmission. In three, two, one.
1: Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean, casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds,
0: fish nerds. it's a podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the Fish Nerds, a show about fish. Fishing and Eating Fish. So it's always funny. Always funny. Yeah, it's always funny. No, it's usually funny. (laughs) Always interesting. And mostly Trump. Clay Grove's chief executive fish nerd, licensed fishing guide, and your best friend. Big show for you this week. John and I were not able to get together, but John is like a content creator hero? We'll call him a hero. Let's call John a hero. John King, the crappie hippie. So he has gone out and grabbed a few interviews, which we're going to hear today. Uh, Here's what you're going to hear. You're going to hear about pre-spawn bass with less than Professor Klein. And this is interesting to me because catching bass before the spawn, for me, is like the hardest time to catch bass. Uh, Catching during the spawn is easy. I always feel a little bit bad about it, but I do it anyway, just like you. Don't pretend you're better than me. Uh, You do it anyway because it's really, really fun. But Les, the Professor Klein, will tell us all about it. Looking forward to that. Then we have Amy, the Oklahoma, Oklahoma, Oklahoma where the wind comes sweeping on the plains. The pond lady coming back here versus the IG expert, which would be really interesting to hear about. Can't wait to hear about that. We're also going to check in with my friend, uh, the Greg, the Knitting Daddy, where he catches and cooks a puffer fish and doesn't die. It's all going to be coming right at you here in just a couple minutes on the on the Fish Nerds podcast. In the meantime, I do want to thank you all for listening. It's been a wild ride. I'm going to keep this podcast going. Big thanks to John King for making it happen. But I do want to give a shout out to our Patreon supporters. Those people have been with us. You people have been with us a long, long time. appreciate you. Literally, the only reason we can afford to make the podcast is from Patreon. And if you want to support us, go to patreon.com. Look for the Fish Nerds. And, you know, throw in a few bucks an episode. I mean... Figure like we do two episodes a month maybe you give us five bucks a month goes a long way and I'll give you some good entertainment for it for your money good bang for your buck a lot of fun uh as far as fishing here in Mount Washington Valley New Hampshire right now uh salmon season just opened April 1st but I couldn't salmon fish because the lakes were frozen so I that's it game over <laughs> so another week or so before I get out fishing I'll tell you all about that adventure as I get into it looking forward to getting some salmon onto the uh, onto the plate and we'll talk about cooking it as well but why don't we get right into the fun first up we've got pre-spawn bass with less the professor since we're talking about pre-spawn bass bass means sex let's play some sex
0: music everyone it seems wants to get
1: Let's talk about Spawning. Before I get into the, the piece here, I do want to talk about the person who wrote this music for us. And he's finally decided on how we can credit him with the music he provides. Now, he asked me never to reveal his real name to you. But his name now is, and his wife thinks it's very funny, so we know it's funny, the Mysterious Baitcaster Cylinder. Thank you for our sex music, and we're looking forward to... Re- uh, I almost said your name. Looking forward, to- <laughs> looking forward to giving some new music for our upcoming episodes. I know you're working on some fun stuff for us there. So let's get into it with Les the Professor Klein.
2: Hey everybody, it's Croppy Hippie here, your tree-hugging redneck from eastern Kansas, and I'm really excited. I have in the studio a friend of mine, a fishing buddy of mine of over 48 years, Les, the Professor Klein, and I call him the professor because not only does he know everything about fishing and hunting and rod building and this and that and the other thing, but he schools me almost every time we go fishing. So I was excited to get him in here. We're going to talk about pre-spawn bass. Les good to see you buddy how's it going
3: it's really good to see you again john you know i was reflecting the other day we've been fishing since the united states was 200 years old that is
2: crazy the bicentennial
3: (laughs) it really is but man we've had a lot of great fishing times together learned a lot together broke off a few big fish together i'm just really glad to be here thanks for inviting me out Well,
2: thanks for showing up. I am excited about the topic. So let's get right into it. What we're going to talk about is when is late winter bass fishing let off and the pre-spawn start? Because, folks, I'm telling you, this guy has pre-spawn down. He fishes some of these lakes that are just pressured, pressured, pressured. Last year, he just kept sending me pictures of three, four, five, and even a six-pound bass. He's out catching in these waters. So he's got it dialed in. So he's going to clue us all in. And you know what? I'm just going to kind of turn this over to you, my man, and let you tell us about pre-spawn bassing.
3: All right. To answer your question directly, I think uh, the late winter bass period, when the water temperatures are hovering around 40 degrees, but I would say pre-spawn really kicks off when water temperatures hit that magical 50-degree water temperature mark. That's when some um, scientists have have seen and observed at 50 degrees, there's some physiological changes that happen in bass. They swim easier. Their metabolism speeds up. And that all makes sense in terms of uh, the next phase when they're getting ready to spawn.
2: All right. So they actually go through some physiological changes. So we've got under forty degrees, we're ice fishing for bass. We're kind of doing that thing or open water fishing in the cold. in late winter we're in that 40 degree zone where they start to get a little more active. But now now things really get rolling. Is that what I'm hearing?
3: Absolutely. Uh just uh was it last winter or so? I saw you catch about a four pound bass through a hole we drilled through the ice. So you know bass bite in all temperatures of water, even very cold water, even ice water.
2: Okay, so now here we are. We're out at one of your pressured lakes. We've got that magic temperature. Okay, let's start off talking about transition bass, which are bass that move from deeper water into the shallow areas to start setting up their spawning routine. And then what are called, you know, like what Ned Cady talks about, your shallow water bass, your residential bass, just kind of hang around this, is their habitat in that two to five foot range? And they're kind of already there. Is there any strategy difference between getting getting into either one?
3: There's no doubt that there are two different groups of bass. And uh, we should uh, adjust our strategies uh, in the pre-spawn time when trying to catch those fish.
2: All right, so you know you know, I'm not a big bass fisher. You know I'm a panfish guy. I like uh, I like my ultralight. I like my finesse. I'll take bass uh, when they come along, and actually I've caught more nice bass than I have in a long, long time just because of uh, testing all the lures that Z-Man and Berkeley and some of these other fine folks have sent me to test, so I find myself bass fishing more. So I've been reading about bass fishing and all this kind of stuff, and what I've read is kind of—let me— go down what I've gathered to be the pre-spawn gospel. One of the main things is they say fish shallow to deep. So I'm going to let you take that one on and tell us about how you feel about that uh, line out of the pre-spawn gospel.
3: Yeah, absolutely. There's always a reason for gospel stuff. It's there because people catch fish doing that kind of thing. Part of the other pre-spawn gospel is that the group of of fish that move deeper over the wintertime are going to want to start moving into shallower water. And so that means fish are moving up from deeper channel cuts and banks and deeper structure, and they're headed back into uh, coves, flats, shallower areas, because that's where they're going to bed, make a nest, drop eggs, and start uh, the next generation of bass. So, however, the, the resident, uh, resident bass... Because resident bass don't move into deeper water, uh, they found a way to deal with living in the shallow all year. So they don't tend to move as much in the springtime with all the weather fluctuations. They'll sit a little tighter on cover if there's a cold snap or uh, some conditions that uh, are a little more uncomfortable for, for them. But they won't typically move out of that, say... Two feet to six foot depth area. They'll hang around there all year long.
2: Okay, so getting back to uh, this shallow versus deep, uh, you, you're telling us, yeah, go ahead and start shallow. But when I mentioned this the other day, you said, oh, wait a minute, not every truth is truth 100% of the time. So name a couple of situations where you're going to start a little deeper and work in. I think you said Clearwater was one. Fill us in.
3: Yeah, <clears throat> as a general rule, Water clarity as well as temperature plays a big part. So in the pre-spawn, if the water's clearer, bass will tend to be deeper. If the if there's less water clarity, they'll tend to move shallower. Now, I don't know if that's because less clear water absorbs. It's got more particulates in it, so it absorbs a slightly a little bit more, more heat. Or if bass, uh, since they never fully maybe get over being on the prey end of the, uh, of the ladder of who, who eats whom. But, uh, if, if a bass is in clear water, he might be a little more, more nervous about being up shallow. So he's gonna, he or she's gonna hang out deeper, uh, for a little bit longer, uh, in clear water.
2: Okay. So go ahead and start fishing shallow. And I've noticed a lot of these folks that chase these pre-spawn bass do like, the creek arms and the different parts of the reservoir that tend to have darker water, muddier water, uh, stained water for both reasons you just mentioned. Now, that warms up faster, and yeah, it gives the bass some natural cover because even when a bass gets to be seven, eight, ten pounds, he ain't he forgot about that heron that took a stab at him when he was seven inches. You know what I'm talking about? So, they're going to kind of be careful. So everything has has its exceptions and and while 90 percent of the time you should fish shallow if you're in a real clear situation you might start a little deeper just because the the, the light is more comfortable the safety is there and and so on so let's talk about transition bass because we kind of know yeah we're going to fish for these resident bass we're going to look for them in the tight cover we're going to look for them where they, they tend to live but the fun thing about pre-spawn is to Getting these transition bass and ambushing them on the road where they're moving from that deep creek channel, they're moving from that mid lake hump or wherever they spend most of their time hunting shad and doing their thing to get up into the shallows. So, talk about how we get on these transition roads, these transition pathways, and uh, get on these bass.
3: Yeah, when fish are uh, the transition group of bass that are moving from deeper water. Up into the backs of creeks and flat areas where they're going to spawn a great place to start looking you know as I, I thought about it, it's like where where do you find transition bass well with the deep group you're going to find them on channel swing arms you're going to find them on deeper rock piles and brush piles any places where there's access where the deep water comes close to the shallower water is where pre-spawn transitional bass are going to what they commonly call stage up or kind of group up, get ready to make the move into shallower water. Once conditions hit that point where they're like, okay, now's the time to go. So there's a, there's two different ways you could approach it. One, some say start back in the creek start in the shallow areas and then work back out of the shallow fishing to the deep until you find where those pre-spawn bass are holding then once you find them you kind of remember that spot you mark that spot you can come back there again and catch another group of bass that are staging and moving up not all bass spawn at the same time you'll have waves of fish coming in now, typically, your larger female fish will spawn before smaller female fish. So, the great, uh, a, a great tip about fishing the earliest part of the pre-spawn is you're likely to catch your biggest fish of the year at that time. As the big females are the first ones to start to move out of that deeper water, stage up, and get ready to move in. The shallower nesting areas once conditions are what they like. So, I think you could take either approach. You could start out deep and fish in, or you could start in and fish back out. But there are some key areas that you might want to take a look at that are likely suspects for finding transitional bass.
2: All right, so you told me a real good example the other day. One thing I noticed a common tactic if you are lucky enough to be on a lake that has big nice big long points they they tend to terminate or border on deeper water and you can just kind of go down that point and not only can you find what depth they tend to want to be at but you'll want to you know basically you'll know how close to shore they've followed this road in that's one but let's say we're down here at hillsdale What do we got two two nice points in that whole lake the one you know everyone knows about that we call long point because it's a long point that that's kansas color and imagination you know just get to the point we're not going to name it the halcyon point of heaven we're going to just call it long point all right but anyway you know we can fish long point but let's say we don't learn much there we want to you know we're going to need to do something else talk to me about road beds talk to me about other li- you know hedgerow lines talk to me about different pathways and how you follow them in and what you're looking for
3: yeah, absolutely. A point is an excellent example of one of those kind of key areas that you can visibly see if you don't have sonar. Sometimes it's hard to notice like, oh, there's a nice little pile of rocks here on the edge of this channel. But a point is a real obvious one. You can you can see it, it sticks out in the lake. And what makes it good is that typically a channel <clears throat> or deeper water will be somewhere near that point. Now, points are also good because they provide a variety of depth for you to fish. So there's the point of a point, which is the furthest tip of the point out in the middle of the main lake. Then there are the sides of the point. Sometimes I call them the shoulders of the point. And then typically, although sometimes they can be, pronounced sometimes less pronounced you'll have what's also called a secondary point which is like another little point that comes off of the main point
2: so what's your point
4: i'll
3: I'll quit beating around the bush and get to my point here so the point is points and secondary points can be awesome places to look for those transitional bass that are moving up in the pre-spawn Now, also on points, there's the flat part on top. Those can be spawning areas, too, sometimes. So don't neglect any aspects of a point during the pre-spawn or really any other time that you're out fishing.
2: Okay, so I'm following, let's say I'm following a point, or let's say I find an old roadbed or whatever. You were talking to me about substrate breaks. Tell us all, what is a substrate break?
3: Breaks are another aspect of uh, finding those transition points. Sometimes you're going along and like on an old road bed. Well, one time it was relatively flat, probably had a couple bar ditches on each side. Sometimes there will be uh, some kinds of cover, old trees, old brush, things like that on either side of the road. So there's like uh, several substrate breaks that could happen on just a on just a roadbed alone, and I'll get to a couple others after after this. On top of the road could be fine gravel, or if that road's been submerged for a while, it might have a, kind of a layer of silt or mud. So that's, that's pretty flat. On either side in the ditches, you might have a break in that the, the substrate changes. So it goes from a flat mud bottom to a series of stumps, trees, rush, things like that. So the change between a flat, open, muddy bottom to a brushy, lay-down, timber bottom can be one example of a substrate break. Also, if you're fishing along a bank, like at uh, Melbourne, one of our local lakes, or Hillsdale, or really any lake, you're going down the bank and you're coming around the point. And on the point, because the wind's blowing, the water's eroded it a lot, there's a lot of rocks on it. But then as you go down the bank, those rocks kind of give way to smaller rocks. And then the smaller rocks get further uh, degraded into gravel. So each of those transition points or substrate, substrate breaks are great places that fish like to uh, follow and hang out if you notice just in nature edges are very important to all kinds of wildlife find a lot of deer antlers along fence lines because deer are running up and down fence lines a lot the edges of farm fields edges of woods where a tall grass area edges up to a low grass area a creek running through the middle of a patch of ground Each of those situations have different edges, and edges are what are always seem to be attractive to wildlife, both for transportation, for finding food, and maybe for finding each other. So substrate breaks are definitely things you want to pay attention to. On your sonar, if you know how to use it, you'll get a different signal from a hard bottom, from a soft bottom. If the, if the bottom is really coarse, like, say, big, chunky rock, it'll show up as really, you know, a really differentiated, chunky-looking bottom. Smaller rocks will look smoother. Gravel will look smoother yet. But, yeah, all those, uh, all those things are really, really important keys and are used kind of like fish highways, sidewalks, if you will, for them to move from one area to another
2: i'm sorry i, I drifted off uh, all the talk about smooth and chunky bottoms I, I it sent me on to another place um but yeah so so you uh they come apart you know they move out of the, the chunky rock they hit the gravel they're going to kind of hold up there for a while they're going to kind of that might be a, a great place to take pause but it's also kind of how they they find their way around right they they, they remember this stuff and that's kind of how now they get from point a to point b
3: not to be too anthropomorphic about uh, the comparison between bass and human behavior, but if you think of it more as uh, how living things get around birds they follow other mi- like migration routes and things like that you know the geese uh, when they're coming back from uh, from the south going back up north, fish do the same thing they move around. so if you think of your neighborhood, If I suddenly put it under water and you were a fish, chances are you would still follow the street or the way that you remember how to get to the grocery store, how to get to the gas station, how to get to the baseball field. You'd still remember and utilize those different pathways to get where you wanted to be to meet what that need was you had at the moment. If you want to shrink it on down, think of your own house as the same, same thing. You probably have a way that you go from your man cave to the kitchen and from the kitchen to the garage.
2: Those are well-worn pathways, indeed.
3: You're absolutely right, John. I've got a lot of junk and clutter, but by God, the path to the refrigerator is always squeaky clean.
2: Okay, we need to wind this up, but I want to talk about one more thing that's really, really can be red hot for people, and that's what's called choke points. Now, can you explain, folks, what is a choke point, and why can that be so good? And give us a few examples, please.
3: Choke points can be areas, say, if you imagine on a lake, and say there are two points that come out into the main lake. Well, that area between those two points is an example of a point where if the fish want to go from one side to another, they're not going to jump out of the water, walk across the top of the point. They're going to have to go through the water and through that choke point. A lot of times on lakes we fish around here, there are roads and bridges that kind of connect one aspect, one part of a lake with another part of the lake. 99 times out of 100, it's because of creek or a small river runs through that area and so those can be great choke points too bridge pilings the edges of those of that riprap that they put around those bottoms of those bridges can be areas where fish have to move through a relatively small area to get from where they are to where they want to go and typically because of those choke points if there's any kind of current from a drawdown like if you're on a a river system or something or even in kansas lakes the wind sometimes can generate current and that current will be magnified in those choke points which also draws bait fish in there which is always going to be attractive to fish so choke points like of that nature can really be productive spots
2: well it sounds like it because you're basically just concentrating the numbers of fish and another one that it's not real common, but every now and then you'll find that culvert that anywhere in and around that culvert. Is that right?
3: Oh, absolutely. Anything like you just said that puts more fish per square foot in an area than another can be, could be kind of considered a type of, of choke point.
2: All right. Now we're running way over, but I don't care we got to know some lures let's talk about the professor's fave lures for this kind of fishing i see your notes here brother you've got about a dozen and a half 18 20 baits written down here but we are going pre-spawn bassing this morning and i'm stealing all your tackle but five lures what five lures do you want man
3: i'll be honest with you jean you're welcome to get in my tackle box anytime you want to. Oh, <laughs> but it, but it took us 40 years of fishing for me to trust you finally. <laughs> anyway, I'll tell you what I'm bringing today when we go out there to the lake. It's going to be 70 degrees. We're starting to see some warmer nights, which is a real good indication the pre spawns really going to get good too. So in my tackle box today, I brought some jerk baits. That's one. That's one. I brought some Sanko's stick baits. Two. I love the Sanko's because I can rig them wacky or I can tail weight them, fish them Nico. I can fish them just Texas rig. They're very versatile. I always bring my jigs with me. Three i brought a couple of spinner baits for slow rolling along the bottom in shallow water and i brought some chatter baits too because they're another great versatile lure you can fish them like a jig but they wiggle you can fish them through some cover i think i'm going to be in good shape with what i got brought today to go fishing with you my buddy
2: Sounds like you're going to be in great shape, and as long as you're using a chatterbait, why don't you go with the original Z-Man chatterbait? That's what I like to fish with, too. Of course, you sometimes, I swear, you sometimes I think you could just catch them with a stick, with a, with a hook tied to the back, because the bait counts, but it's where you're throwing it, it's how you're moving, and it, it's how you're doing it. Les, thank you so much for showing up earlier and doing this with me this morning. I hope we gave you enough information that you're anxious to get out there when these temperature ranges get to where we want them to go after these pre-spawn baths. I hope we gave you a few tips on how to get after them so you know a little more than you did before. This man, Crappie Hippie, your tree-hugging redneck from eastern Kansas, saying tight lines and valentines. Peace out.
1: And we're back. You know, I just learned more than I thought I would, and I appreciate it. Les, the Professor Klein, thank you so much for feeding us some information let's get keep it going i mean we got so much to do let's just get right into some new stuff here Mm -hmm. transition music i like it let's talk to uh (laughs) amy the oklahoma pond lady versus the ig expert let's jump right in john king is bringing it
2: all right, Amy, tell me your story. You told me you got into a little bit with somebody on Instagram. I want to hear all about it. Somebody thinking they know more about pawns than you do. I, I got to hear how this went down.
0: Well, I definitely want to start out by saying that if I had known a couple of degrees and many, many thousands and thousands of dollars worth of student loans, uh, that I could just be a, a scientist on Instagram without all of that hoop to who, then I could have, uh, I guess, just gone about and been a scientist without really needing all that extra. Yeah, just your degree
2: from Instagram University. Yeah,
0: exactly. So that is something that is a relatively new phenomena that I was not aware of until fairly recently. And let me give you a little bit of background about this, okay? So there are scientists that do. Pond management, lake management, fisheries management. There are many different disciplines of aquatic management degrees. There are also many different types of people that actually use the work that we do in terms of anglers. You know, there are as many different types of anglers as there are scientists. And when you get into a public forum like Instagram, Twitter, what have you, usually it's fairly easy to tell who an angler is versus a scientist, right? You know, it, mostly from the content, if not from their title. And I'm not saying there's not a certain degree of overlap. There are scientists who are anglers, there are anglers that are scientists. But there was a an angler that I reached out to on Instagram that has gotten some notoriety for growing big fish. and. Their bio said scientist. And so I thought, this is fantastic. I'll reach out. Maybe we can collaborate. This is going to be good, right? This person has a big platform. This could be very intriguing to see regional variation from where they're located versus Oklahoma, right? You always want to look at pond differences, and come to find out, this person is not actually a scientist, but that is a tag that they can use to describe themselves. And that's when I realized, oh my God, there are people out there that are portraying themselves as scientists because Instagram gives you that option when you go to a professional account of what you want to call yourself. And Instagram doesn't vet you, they don't ask you to provide your credentials in any way. So once I realized this, and this person, like I said, has a very big platform, has been on lots of different outdoor magazines, uh, podcasts, all kinds of write-ups all over the country. And it, it was concerning to me because this person was portraying themselves as a scientist with no background, no basis for that, except for it was an option for the account type that they could use. So since then, I have come across quite a few people in the pawn management spectrum online that tout themselves as scientists. And so unfortunately now, there is always that thought of, is this person actually a scientist or do they simply have a pawn management company and they're providing pond management ex- experience and advice. Um, in Oklahoma, there's really no oversight for this job. There's no uh, no one really that is asking us to provide any kind of documentation for how we go about doing this. Of course, as a scientist, ethically, you're bound to things like best management practices. Um, you defer to Any of your permitting that's through the EPA, through your Department of Environmental Quality, your Department of Wildlife, as a scientist, there's a due diligence to provide the most scientifically accurate information possible based on the latest research and proven methods that are accepted by all of your governing entities. But if other states are like Oklahoma and there's really nobody that is forcing upon management entity to adhere to those because you're dealing with private lands and there really isn't that oversight for private lands, then you can run into a situation where somebody's very literally just trying to make money and they may tell you whatever they need to tell you in order to do so. So, this situation that I had was essentially where a young man, and I say that sort of sarcastically, I really don't know how old this individual is. I'm assuming he's fairly close to my age and his title doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. So I'm, I'm not going to call him out directly per se. But the progression of his posts um, over the last couple months that I've been following have maybe not given outright false information all the time, but just a little bit possibly misleading information in terms of what's possible for a system. Okay, so here's here's a good example. When you want to grow bass, right? The idea is that if you have a brand new pond, obviously you get their house ready, you get your fish stocked, And then depending on the size of the fish that you stock, it could be a little while before you start getting catchable size. And then on up, whether you want trophy, quality, memorable, it can take a while to get to those size classes depending on growth rates and where you're located, right? So if you start with fryer fingerlings, generally you can get a catchable size fish in a couple of years. If you start with larger size fish that are Able to be targeted with angling gear, then maybe a little quicker, right? But to get to those four or five pound individuals, it's going to take a little while, unless you stock a four or five pound individual. So, this person had said that the only way to get good growth on bass is essentially to restart your pond every 10 years, drain it and start over every 10 years that it was the most economical as well. And unfortunately, this person was smart enough to have a small impoundment management book, the the American Fisheries Society small impoundment management book. And he did take a single line that said that it was the most economically feasible way to restart would be to drain and start over. However, depending on the context of that and his recommendation that it be every 10 years, I had a big problem with, personally. I thought to myself, wait a minute now, that's applying a single situation to every situation. You don't know what the circumstances are of that pond, how old it is, how long it's been in. Let's say you decide you wanna drain it and start over. Sure, it might be fairly cheap to just let the water go and then to buy new fish. However, if you're going to drain a pond, depending on how long it's been in, you may have a significant amount of organic matter accumulated at the bottom. So if you do nothing to address that and you just fill it back up with water, what's going to happen? If you don't have any organisms, you've destroyed your plants from draining and you have a significant amount of organic matter at the bottom of your pond, you add water, you're going to have algae. OK, first of all, that's a main concern. When you start a new pond or you start a pond over, generally you will have some issues with algae up front until you start getting your macrophytes, until you start getting your organisms to, s- to fill out the whole puzzle and make that system function correctly, then algae can become problematic. So then you're, you, ha- you have created another problem. Also. If you start from scratch with new fish, because that was his, his recommendation was to restock it, right? Drain it and restock it. And keep in mind, this is a whole other can of worms is that he had indicated he was going to stock with shad, which you know how I feel about shad and small impoundments. Um, But if you start with small fish in a brand new pond, how long are you going to have to wait? then what are you going to have to do to manipulate the pond after the fact in terms of habitat, chemical treatments? So there's an additional cost you're not uh, factoring in. Also, the fish themselves are expensive, way more expensive a lot of times than what I can do by going in, sampling a pond, and then manipulating the stock densities to help get better growth. So right there, it, it just it didn't make a lot of sense. And so I had noticed that on other posts where I had chimed in with my recommendation on a certain topic, I got very little pushback. Obviously, I touched a nerve on this one. He did not like that I was pushing back against this recommendation, that it didn't seem to be a good blanket approach to bass growth, that that was not the only way to get good bass growth. And that for a lot of people draining a pond and starting over may not be feasible whether it's logistics cost or whatever it may be there there are a lot of factors that weren't being brought into the picture so it got kind of ugly and it made me it made me sort of question my own knowledge and experience actually to the point to where I started did thinking to myself, is this guy right? And then it was like, oh, holy crap. That's how easy it can be to be swayed by someone who may be just out for their own agenda. And I truly have no idea if this guy is actually a scientist or if he's one of these people that is touting himself as a scientist but really just owns a pawn management company. So, it is something that I feel as a whole, the internet is a great resource. But in this day and age, it seems that people have forgotten how to determine what a reput- reputable source of information actually is. Just looking at somebody on Instagram, and I'm throwing myself in there too. Don't just take my management advice and decide that that's the the end all be all. I want people to to be able to pick my methods apart too. Because the more that we can be open to different ideas, the more that we can see that there are different ways of doing things, the more chance we have to adapt and create new methods and it improves the entire field if everybody shares knowledge. But to blindly share knowledge And to blindly take knowledge that is given on the Internet as fact can be a slippery slope. And depending on your own situation, if you take somebody's information, apply it to your own situation, you could inadvertently cause yourself a huge problem, either financially or you could end up destroying your ecosystem somehow. So there's that was a very specific example, of course, but. I think that it applies more broad scope to the landscape of getting information online and who, who do you trust? And just because you can click that scientist button on your bio for your page banner at the top, doesn't mean that you're necessarily have those credentials to back up that title. So,
2: okay. Now it's my turn to respond. I've behaved as, as long as I can. And, yes. and, uh, I'm just going to say right now, yeah, way to go. Instagram scientist in air quotes. No, right. So we have real scientists like you and doc, and Josh and James, and, and, and we have a new person coming on named Laura and we have real scientists on this podcast. So this is already cooking by grits in a big <laughs> old way, because I'm going to sit here. I'm sitting on a pond that's been around since 1971. So. Anyhow, you know, I've been taking your advice for years. My pond, 1971. You know, a lot of things I can say. First of all, you want to drain your pond? That's gonna be about three grand. Have a guy cut cut a cut a hole in it and then repack your dam for you. All right, right there. I don't even see how it's cheaper than me going down to some company that has a bunch of pallets sitting in his back lot and saying, Hey, can I have a few of those and start making me some minnow uh some minnow habitat or something like that? All right, right Mm -hmm. then that's gonna improve the fishing in your pond. It's gonna grow bigger fish, it's gonna do all this. Because telling me I got a shell out X grand every 10 years to have this outstanding bass fishing just isn't right. Just isn't right. You can find the predominant brush in Kansas. It's cedars. We cut the heck out of cedars. We put them in the pond. Now we're growing crappie. We're growing bass. We're growing a lot of fish, a lot of nice size fish. Yeah. So it, it is irritating. It is irritating. But what the most salient point you have here in this climate right now. Is that there's a lot of people just saying anything, and unfortunately, no matter how outrageous or how off the wall it is, uh, we all can be fooled. But these people can be persistent enough to get you to consider because you're a reasonable person. You've been taught to consider both sides. You're a scientist. You've been taught about peer review and all this stuff, you know, examination, just like you say, you want to pick my methods apart. You want to talk in a reasonable, intelligent way about methods. I'm all over that. You're all over that. The nerds are all over that. Right. Anyway, I, uh, when you, you pos- posited this, this for a story, I, I, uh, just had to leap right on it. This isn't how it's done, right? Uh, but you're not showing much empathy for all these pond owners that might have better things to spend their money on than some giant bass. You know, maybe they just want to have a good solid pond where the kids can go fishing, where they can go down and build a little fire and just enjoy the moonlight or what have you. And you've turned this into some sort of competitive nonsense in my eyes.
0: Yes, yeah. I agree. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, he, yeah, I, I feel a little, little bad that, that he got to me enough that I reacted negatively. I try to only react to people online with kindness. And if I cannot do that, I walk away and he really got to me. So, you know, it's one of those things where it, it, and I think people like that, enjoy it. So just creates dissension and feelings of animosity where they don't belong like let's all just have fun like you said let's go down to the pond build a fire hang out tell stories and enjoy each other's company it doesn't have to be about growing a record bass every time
2: well and even if it is about growing a record bass i guarantee you that you can take your existing pond, like I say, my pond built 1971. Well, I caught a five pounder out of there last summer. All right. I haven't even put in half the improvements you've recommended. I'm already just putting in brush around the shore, has got me that far. So exactly. I'm back. We're back to producing four and five pound bass. So, you know, that's a I, good
0: I, point I, as well, John. Little things can make big differences. It doesn't have to be as drastic as draining your pond and starting over.
2: Well, it just sounds like I got a thing, big, big, big money, money, money all the time and good for you and your, your whole carrying on. But, uh, I'm sticking sticking with you, Oklahoma pond. lady.
0: (laughs) Well, and that's what really got me is, uh, that's what got me heated is he started trying to attack me saying that I was taking advantage of my clients. And that's really when I lost it because that's you and I both know that that's not how I operate. And I care more about, our water resources than I do about making money any day of the week and spreading my knowledge about how to do this is so much bigger, a part of my mission than any paycheck ever will be.
2: So it's quite clear. You've given more advice out to people that call you or people like me that you meet just off the cuff advice, than you will ever make a dollar on, I mean, you've given away more and more money and advice, just, just being friendly than, you're ever going to make. All I can say is, uh, sorry, you had to run into this person. Uh, I commend you for giving it a chance and trying to uh, engage and trying to propose. Maybe you could open your mind. You certainly had your mind open, but it doesn't always work out. And sometimes people Mm -hmm. are just so dug into their little trench there. They they can't see anything at all. And the fact that he's so easily threatened and he's so easily put off a balance uh, by just a little reasonable talk is Pretty much an indication that he's, you know, he maybe need a little therapy, maybe need a little maybe a little more happiness in his life because uh maybe. right now it's all about a power trip or something like that. Anyway, enough said, enough said. Enough well,
0: said. Well, thank you, sir. Appreciate you. it very much.
2: All righty. Well, this has been the Oklahoma Pond lady talking with Crappie Hippie, your tree hugging redneck from eastern Kansas, saying tight lines and Valentines, and always take that stuff with a grain of salt and remember. There's air quotes on a lot of it. Sorry, Instagram. It's just the way it is. <laughs> Peace out. Sorry, Amy, that you had to get into it with somebody. It's kind of unfortunate that that happens, but it just does. I did go into this person's feed and kind of look it over did and get real in depth because I don't have time for that sort of thing. I got life of my own to live, but what I could basically tell is that this person, he's been doing it for like 25 years or so he claims. And his idea of a perfect pond is one where there's just a lot of big bass kind of for you to turkey shoot, kind of there for you to you know, catch over and over again uh, that grow quite a bit year in, year out until you're catching a lot of five to 12 pound bass, which in Alabama is quite possible. And And uh, the fish grow year round and, and the bass can grow right up to a big size. And yeah, you want to keep your species diversity low because you don't want the bass to have to share forage with any other fish. What he's basically saying in restarting the pond every 10 years is you want to keep it in a time lock because it doesn't really matter whether it's a big, huge reservoir or a pond. When you start fresh, you have very low species diversity. All the other things that were in there, in the case of a big reservoir, all the fish that were in there when it was filling that lived in the river before, you know, they're running around, so you have the bullheads and the catfish and the different sort of sunfish and so forth. But gradually the targeted species in Kansas, the big game species are bass and walleye. They come in and they start eating all that up because bullheads are slow swimmers and green sunfish are also slow swimmers and very aggressive. And so pretty soon you're not catching any bluegill or any bullheads anymore because they've been eaten up. And in the meantime, the shad are coming on to replace them. So, you basically now, once you've eaten all the native and indigenous fish out, you basically have shad and then these big game fish. And until they come along and start stocking white bass and crappie and, and this and that, or until the carp populations rise and some of these other things that compete with shad uh, start increasing, that's basically what you're going to have, low diversity and fast growth in your game fish. But as a reservoir or pond or whatever matures and species become more diverse, the fishing, yeah, it'll cool off some, but then you'll have a more diverse environment that can support more different, different kinds of fish and more different kinds of, of animals. Now, if you just want a bass pond that grows these really big bass and down in Alabama, you can certainly do that. It has a lot of growth uh, time in the calendar because it's a subtropical climate. Um, Certainly follow his advice. He knows what he's talking about, but to proclaim that, oh, everybody needs to do it this way. Everybody needs a pond that's just full of big hog bass and, and the, the food for them to feed on and and nothing else. um, Not really, it's just another one of those things where someone's trying to tell everybody you need to be like me. Well, some of us, myself in particular, I'm not really into that. I'd rather have crappie and a lot of perch and some red ears and, you know, some catfish and... Some other things in my pond, I like having the birds and the different plants and all these other things, uh, hanging out at the pond. Uh, You know, starting a pond over takes quite a bit of time, and I'm about to turn 61. So in 10 years, I'll be 71. And here in Kansas, you know, it's going to be three, four, five years before we start catching big bass out of our big bass pond. And down in Alabama, you, you might beat that by a couple of years, but still, you're going to get that hot fishing for four, five, six years maybe, and then, you know, you're going to have to start over, and you have the time. Not only that, we talked about the expense, what one people think is cheap— other people think it's very, very expensive. I like to do things on the cheap. I don't want to spend X thousand dollars on fish or excavation or any other darn thing. I like my pond. It's been around there for a long time. There's a lot of animals that are used to having it there, and it's a perfectly productive pond. We catch nice four- and five-pound fish every now and then. We catch nice 14-, 13-, 14-inch crappie every now and then. We catch some nice slabby bluegill and red ears, and we even catch some big old catfish every now and then. Um For me, I like to fish in an ecosystem. I like to fish in a wildlife habitat. Um, You know, when you're raising bass, just bass and forage, well, you're basically creating a pond full of, I don't know, trained hogs that are just kind of rolling around, you know, and you're looking for those easy pickings. If that satisfies you and you want to just go out and catch these bass over and over again, well, then that's your business, and and you should certainly follow his advice because if you live in the deep south like that, You certainly can get into a pond that regularly produces 10-pound bass by following his advice. The problem comes when we start telling people that this is the only way it can be done. And he says himself that in 25 years, only a small handful of people have ever taken his advice to drain and restart their ponds continuously. And then he says, and these people need to get over their feelings because emotion is the reason they don't want to drain their ponds. And they need to get over their feelings and get smart. Well... See, once again, he's belittling people who disagree with him. He's belittling people who want something other than what he's into. He's another one of these people that we have way too many of these days that say, I want everybody to be like me. I want everybody to agree with me. I want everybody to believe in all the things I believe in and nothing but what I believe in. And that's just not cool. Like I say, for me, I want to fish in a wildlife habitat. I want to fish in an ecosystem. And I want to fish for more than bass. So you want one thing, you can check the guy out, but Oklahoma pond lady, she knows her clients. She knows what kind of fishing they are into. They know, she knows what they want out of their pond and she does her very best to get it for them. And that is why her business is so successful. So I'm still with the Oklahoma pond lady because I like a diverse ecosystem and I'm going to take my advice from a freshwater ecologist that used to work for the state fishing game and not worry so much about some caged-up bass that are being just grown so I can put pictures of big bass on Instagram. That's not where it's at for me. Anyway, thank you all for listening. This is Crappy Hippie, your tree-hugging redneck with a little comment after the story. Tight lines and valentines. Peace out.
1: (laughs) Next up, man, we are so busy. We've got Greg the Knitting Daddy all about catching and cooking and eating pufferfish. If you want to check out Greg, his podcast is called The Unraveling Podcast. You can go to unravelingpodcast.com for all the details. Oh, boy. Crowd's going nuts. The crowd is going wild, because Greg is here. Greg is the knitting daddy. Hey, Greg, how's it going?
4: Hey, Clay, it's going well. hope you're doing well.
1: I'm doing great. You know, any chance I get to have you on the pod is exciting, because I love talking about knitting. Actually, I don't. I, right? I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's always a, it's it's fun to, to know that so many other kinds of podcasts are out there. Before we get into talking about cooking and eating and catching a puffer fish, it was a puffer, right? Yeah, it was a puffer. Yeah. I want to hear about your podcast and why People should tune into your show. What is your show?
4: So my show is the Unraveling Podcast. It is a knitting podcast. I think it's called Unraveling, a knitting podcast. You think that's what it's called? (laughs) I think that's what it's called. (laughs) I only say it every couple of weeks when we record it. Right. And yes, there we go. And uh, I have a a co-host, Pam, and the two of us get together and we talk about knitting, crochet, other fiber arts, and whatever else we feel like, uh, which for me often includes fishing and baseball and um, raising a 10-year-old daughter and just whatever. It's kind of like a nice chit-chat show, and we have a lot of fun.
1: Right. And we're recording this on opening day. Speaking of baseball, I see you have a Braves uh, jersey on.
4: I got all dressed up, so when I'm on on, on all of my video meetings at work, everyone knows who I'm representing. and. My background, my, my virtual background on work is a big opening day banner behind me. It should be a national holiday.
1: Well, it, it's interesting. There was a survey done. Budweiser did a, uh, not survey, a um, a petition to the federal government to try and make it a national holiday because somewhere near 40% of people take part of the day off to watch oh, yeah. baseball. And they got over 100,000 signatures and it went no- nowhere. Right. <laughs> it went it's... nowhere.
4: Politicians, they they need to be doing important work like this instead of whatever it is that they do.
1: It must be important. I'm now. I'm not a uh, sports sports person, so I don't follow yeah. sports, but I do understand that You know, and, and we're all nerdy about stuff, and yeah. sports happens to be one of those things that you can be, you can be nerdy about. So I support it. And plus, anytime I can get an extra day off, I'm game.
4: <laughs> I mean, what's I mean, what's what's not to love about baseball? You get to go outside, spend time, you know, drink beer, eat cool food, and just really be outside and have fun. All
1: right, well, let's not talk more about baseball because it's not the uh, not. fish nerds baseball podcast. It would not be a very good show because I don't know much about it. But I do want to talk about you. You went on was that were you on vacation?
4: Yes. Where yes, were you? last last week? I went to uh, Cape Lookout National Seashore in North Carolina. And I, I went with my father-in-law and my brother-in-law. We have an annual trip we've been going on for about ten years now, and my father-in-law had been going uh, a long time as well, decades and decades out, out to the the Cape Lookout. Where's where state's that in? It's in North Carolina. Okay,
1: you got to help us a little bit.
4: Absolutely, <laughs> I'm here for you. And uh, it is it's neat because it's uh, in in the kind of the Barrier Islands, the Outer Banks area of North Carolina, and it's this is an undeveloped area because it's a national seashore Mm -hmm. so instead of having like houses and hotels and stuff right up on the beach it is an island with like practically nothing on it the park service has built a uh a, a cabin camp it's like primitive cabins uh it's like one room uh that has uh three bunk beds in it and uh, a range and sink and oven. And then there's like a walled off bathroom as well. If you bring a generator, you can plug it into the house to the cabin and, and have electricity to run the light bulbs and a couple of uh, wall outlets. If you want to recharge your phones and stuff like that.
1: But yeah. well, I've got a little, a little postcard you sent me from the outer bank a couple oh, of yeah. years back. So I still have yeah, there it. Is. I still have it. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. cool. Yeah. All right. So you went out there fishing and you were fishing yep. from the bank.
4: Yes, yeah, surf fishing. So you know we got our waders on, going you know just a couple of inches and in, you know that subs up to our, about our ankles mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah.
1: All right, so so what was your setup? Tell us. Let's get go right down to details. How, what was your style of fishing? What were you using for All bait? So, what was your rig like?
4: Yeah, so um, I had I had a, a surf rod with a Shimano reel is what I was using most of the time. Uh, we set up uh our um. A rig to usually uh, use like some some um bottom lures like with the two two hooks on it, mm-hmm. and we would put uh frozen shrimp we, we got frozen shrimp we'd like to get the fresh shrimp they didn't have fresh everything needs
1: frozen year. shrimp anyway it works yeah, yeah I
4: was like frozen yeah I know, it's like whatever i i like I like the, the shrimp with the heads on them. right so, me too. Yeah, but whatever uh so yeah, so we had frozen shrimp and some cut mullet um and uh then i i I also had some of the the Berkeley fish bites mm-hmm. I would use that sometimes as well. Uh, so just, uh, put it out. I was using, I think about a five ounce weight, uh, sometimes an eight ounce on the, the, like the really windy days just to, you know, toss it out as, as best we can. It's like about a nine foot rod, toss it out, get it out there and, and then stand in the ocean until it starts jiggling your pole. <laughs> and, then, and then you reel it in.
1: All right. So you caught right. a good variety of fishes, right?
4: Yes. Before we get
1: yeah. to the puffer fish, give me some of the fish sure. you got.
4: Yeah, so this year we we caught three kinds, which mm-hmm. was actually a lower lower number than we usually catch. So we we caught blue, we caught a couple of bluefish. One mm-hmm. of um, my favorites about by 12, the way. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, about twelve to fifteen inches on those, and uh, on those we like to eat them right away because the nice strong flavor. And if you don't eat them right away, they get even stronger. Right. So, <laughs> Fine. If you
1: bleed those out when you catch them, you get a little more mileage yeah. out of them too. Get the blood out of them yeah. as fast as you can. Get them on ice.
4: Yep. Yeah that's something that i started doing a couple of years ago um the the crew that i had been going with had not been doing that and i was like you know what just got to cut that artery there let them bleed a little bit and it will help a lot it's a difference so doing that and then we also caught a handful of whiting this year we usually catch a good number of that and that's a that's a good fish and we a lot of times we'll take those home because they'll they'll last longer in the cooler cuz we're we're out for between 4 to 6 days for for a trip for this trip usually right. And then um, we caught a little more than a dozen puffer fish this year.
1: Right. Now, I've so. never really... I, I've caught a puffer fish once, and they're so stupid right. cute.
4: They
1: and, are so cute. And you decided you were going to eat them. And this is, what, this is what caught my eye, because I love the idea of eating fish that aren't a common table food. And so...
4: You, like, idea of eating cute things. Yeah, well, fish. you
1: know, the cute <laughs> things are the most dangerous things. So Absolutely. I'm always I'm always yeah. game for eating danger. So so you caught a bunch of puffer fish, and you decided to keep them. Did, you, did anyone in your crew laugh at you for the idea of eating those little things?
4: Uh, originally, yes, but now, no. They're sold. So, yes, yeah, so they're sold on it. So, the story on this is, like I mentioned, we've been we've been going out for about 10 years, and uh, so my brother-in-law and I are similar ages, and then we we're going with my father-in-law. Similar age, like, 27. Was, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so, anyway, so my father-in-law is you know, much older, and he's been going for a while, and, and so he's the one who kind of taught us how to surf fish, and- was telling us that you know when we were pulling in a bunch of these puffer fish in the early years he says throw that one back throw it back we're not keeping that and so we did we kept throwing them back but the first several years we kept catching a lot of them and my brother-in-law and i were like why are we throwing back all of this stuff we're throwing everything back and we're Mm -hmm. not eating any of the good fish that we're catching So uh, we had – and I think think their idea was based on from when they were fishing in the 50s and 60s and 70s that that's just – that's what they did because other species, they were catching a lot more of those other species than we catch now. Well, there's only
1: about a handful of species most people eat anyway. They have their fish that they know they like and they're not going to branch out without some external force. You are the external force on this one
4: right so we we did some searching uh my brother and i did some searching on youtube to see how to how to properly harvest and clean these fish because mm-hmm. it's different than filleting right. or whatnot the the, the structure is it, of the the bone structure and everything is different and um we were concerned because you know we we hear you know that puffer fish are full of neurotoxins and mm-hmm. don't necessarily want to eat that. Right, we've all heard and... the stories
1: that the the famous it was <laughs> you know, the, the Japanese sushi chefs who, right, if you don't exactly. prepare them just right, you kill the person eating them.
4: Exactly. Yeah, we we don't want to eat a danger fish. Uh, so, but in, in the research on that, we 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 discovered that what we were catching were the Atlantic puffers, which have a much lower neurotoxin level than like Pacific puffers. Right. So
1: just a little sick.
4: little sick avoid the organs avoid the skin and you're fine perfect so don't lick them (laughs) which is don't lick don't lick them and you know like don't eat fish brains and you know fish organs and stuff like that which is great and then we were also seeing that other people who were at the at the park who were catching and keeping them uh had some special tools to help help skin the fish because you skin them not scale them Mm -hmm. and uh and so we talked with them to figure out, you know, how are we supposed to clean this sort of fish? Local
1: knowledge is the best kind of knowledge. I mean, it really matters.
4: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we even found one guy had a toad. It was called a toad tool. The puffers are called toads also because they they make croaking noises when you get them out of the water. Sure. Uh, so we had this tool called a toad tool, which kind of looked like a little garden trowel uh, where the tines were only about an inch or so. And you could use that to to hold the puffer's head down while you were, like, pulling the skin off like you would skin a catfish or something like that.
1: Perfect. So now you got these and, these little naked fish.
4: Yeah, naked fish with, uh, like, on, the, on, on either side of the backbone are two beautiful white fillets about the side, like, kind of shaped like your thumb, Mm -hmm. uh, or one of your fingers and you can pull those out. Uh, there's a little bit of membrane around it.
1: When you say like your thumb, is that the actual size too? Is that just like little? Yeah. Yeah. It's about
4: the actual size and and you end up with two easter where they look like little fish sticks, Mm -hmm. like you would find, you know, in the freezer section of your grocery store, they're like almost rectangular sized, um, like cylindrical, maybe, uh, there's no bones in them, um, nothing to, nothing to worry about. And it. Throw them in some, bread them up. Throw them in some oil. Put them in the pan, and a couple minutes later, you're chowing down on some puffer.
1: Nice. So this really basic recipe for you too. Just bread yeah. and fry. Do you do the uh, wet dry, the, the the dry wet dry pattern? How do you? What's your what's your what's your mix for?
4: So 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 an egg and some milk. Um, put the put the fish in that, and then put it um in some like uh, we use a, uh, house archery seafood breading. Mm-hmm. Shake it up. Throw it in the pan.
1: Simple. 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 I love simple. 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 Sounds delicious.
4: It is so good. It's uh, a light, it's got a white, it's a white fish flavor and a a little bit of a sweetness to it. That's Uh, a neurotoxin. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. And then, and then I feel, and I feel wonderful for the rest of the wild. That's great. And yeah.
1: Oh, that's cool. Then I'll put pictures of your fish up on the show notes of this episode. you Check out the Atlantic puffer. Now, um, That's exciting. I just love talking about eating fish that people don't traditionally eat. So that's
4: they're so good.
1: It's so good. And if you want to fish sustainably, it's one of the one ways you can make a difference. Is rather than just just eating the game fish, eating some of the smaller species of fish, and I think smaller Mm -hmm. fish are more sustainable. So good move. Good job.
4: Yeah, do what I can.
1: Good job. All right.
4: So <laughs> if, if do what I can means put fish in front of me and let me eat it, I'm 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 here for that. You're a hero. You're a fish <laughs> hero.
1: All right. So Doc Martin sent us some questions about knitting. Uh-oh. Because, uh oh. Okay. Because she's she's been She actually messaged me a few weeks ago. She said, Clay, do we have anyone in the podcast who's into knitting and crochet? And I went, Yeah, well, Greg is and so now that I got I know you. A guy. Yeah. So she sent me <laughs> some stuff here for you. She says, uh, she wants to know which uh, shark would be hardest to knit, World Tooth Shark, Goblin Shark, or Thresher Shark.
4: Um, well, the goblin shark's got that like funny little mm-hmm. thing going down and I mean, to really get the, yeah, I, I, I might go with the goblin. All
1: right. Uh, which fish would be the most fun to knit whale shark, sarcastic finger fringe head. That's a real thing. And paddlefish, which one's the most fun
4: one to knit? I, I don't know what a sarcastic fringe head is. No, it's fun to say. I, I want to knit it just so that I can say I knitted a sarcastic friend <laughs> head. So that's that's the one that I'm going with. That's the
1: one you're going to go first. So you can, so you can just say you knit it. Yeah. 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 I think the paddlefish would be fun too because have all the, I, the yeah, all the parts. I don't know, but what paddlefish look like? I have to like Google that one up. And uh, how many skeins would it take to knit a full grown white sturgeon to scale? It's a math
4: question. Um, uh, well, so. The answer to that is it depends since scans come in a variety of different sizes, <laughs> you know, so you might have fifty gram scans, 100 gram scans, or whatever. So I'm going to say that it takes enough
1: enough. That's the right answer. yeah, that's yeah. my notes. That's actually the correct answer. so you're yeah. you're winning so far. Now, Doc Martin says, if you want to make her a gift, okay. she would like a school of tiny knitted darters because that would be so cute. Now, she didn't say Aww. what kind of darters, So I'm going to put in my plug for tessellated darters. Okay. got really good colors I, on it. I'll
4: keep that in mind. Keep
1: that in mind if you're making, you know, presents for Doc Martin. That's, that's okay. what she wants. All, all right, right, Greg. <laughs> uh,
4: yeah, if she, if she writes a song for me, maybe I'll make, maybe I'll knit something. Maybe more. she'll write you
1: a theme song for your podcast.
4: Never <laughs> you you know. know. <laughs>
1: all right, Greg. That's all the time I've got for you today. Plug your show one more time for us.
4: Yeah, it's the uh, Unraveling and Knitting podcast. You can find it at unravelingpodcast dot com, and we are here to talk about knitting and all sorts of other stuff.
1: All sorts of other stuff. Right. What's what's the weirdest thing you ever knitted?
4: The weirdest thing I've ever knitted um, might be. Uh, I think maybe one of the most fun uh, weirdish things is is a hat that looks like a dead fish. I've seen uh, that. <laughs> yeah we last time we were talking i thought about that one too it's um uh, it's kind of fun so it looks like a dead fish uh just like eating up my head
1: perfect i was funny one of my 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 daughter's best friend wears a hat like that all winter long that her mom knitted for her i still have a yeah. little knitted uh fish you made the me a
4: little yeah. ornament there yeah nice. Look, it's there almost a
1: darter it's just not long enough so
4: right yeah oh, there you go yeah
1: all right greg <laughs> thanks for coming on the fish Dirts podcast.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Happy to talk about this anytime.
1: And after all that, the question I wonder would you eat a pufferfish? I'm in. I'm all in on that one. But, I mean, Greg, thank you so much for that. I appreciate your time. So much going on. Next week, we'll be interviewing. Yeah, I've got an interview interviewing Zeb Hogan, who wrote the book Chasing Giants, which comes out in April. And uh, we'll be interviewing him. Zeb has been uh, making a TV show for National Geographic for years. And this is his book. And I read it. And we'll talk about that on next week's Fish Nerds podcast. But that's it. We're out of time. So until next time, follow the code of the Fish Nerds. Oh, no. Before that, let's do thank yous. Big thank you to Greg, the knitting daddy. Thank to Amy, the Oklahoma pond lady. And, of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't thank less to Professor Klein. Also, big thank you to... Why is this music playing? I'll turn that down. Also, <laughs> big thank you to Wally Pleasant for writing our theme music for this episode. And we do need to thank... Do need to thank... It's going to take me a while to remember how to say this properly because it's new for me. But we've got to thank our, our, our sex music provider whose name shall not be named. His name today... <laughs> is the mysterious baitcaster cylinder. Thank you for making our sex music. And until next time, oh, thanks, John King. Until next time, follow the code of the fish nerds. Spawn early and often. Never trust a free lunch with strings attached and swim against the current every chance you get. Whether you're fly fishing in a stream getting those ankles wet
3: or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds.
1: podcast Just for the halibut Fried in a basket or broiled in a pan Eat it raw like you're in Siam fish
2: nerds Fish nerds
0: Fish nerds It's a podcast